Welcome to the Natural Capital Podcast, produced as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. My name is Rachel Smiley and in this series we explore different natural capital assets and their value to Scottish agriculture and the rural economy and the pressures and threats they face. We speak to people, groups and experts helping to manage, protect and restore these resources, ecosystems and habitats. In this episode of Natural Capital, we are getting techie, discussing all things drones, data and technology and how these can be used by land managers to assess, monitor and improve their natural capital assets. Understanding what you have on your land is a constant theme that comes up time and time again in our episodes. To delve into this further, today we are joined by Jack Yule. Jack is a consultant experienced in using technology to monitor and assess natural capital assets. In particular, he uses drones and satellite-derived remote sensing data to optimise environmental monitoring and decision-making processes. Notable recent projects have included gathering, processing and analysing data from priority peatlands, as well as utilising drone-based LiDAR for above-ground carbon quantification. All of which sounds very complicated, but we are hoping Jack is going to be able to make sense of it all and show us how it's been used to benefit Scottish land managers. So welcome, Jack, to the Natural Capital Podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Rachel. No, I'm good. Thanks. I'm doing really well. To start us off, do you want to tell us how you got into using drones? Sort of fell into it while doing my master's. So I did a, a kind of joint SOUC Edinburgh Uni um, master's in environmental protection and management. And uh, my dissertation was looking at baselining river restoration using drone data and classification software to see if we can kind of baseline it before they do any restoration work. Um, and then the idea was that future years would then go back, repeat survey it, and we'd be able to get a better understanding of the changes that are happening on the river. So that kind of jumped me into drone work and uh, kind of just went from there. I kept trying to see how we could maybe incorporate it into work we're doing and where it may be able to add value or um, offer new opportunities. And is there any special training that you needed to do in order to use it in your job? Anyone can really fly a drone. It gets a bit more complicated when you start looking at different types of drones. We have done a few different training courses to allow us to fly in more complex situations. But to fly just generally, all you really need to do is a very quick online course from the Civil Aviation Authority, which gives you flyer ID, um, which everyone who's flying a drone is required to have. And then you basically using that, you're able to fly generally within the rules. And then for work, we've obviously done um, a bunch of other courses that allow us to fly heavier drones in more complex situations so closer to buildings closer to busy roads people etc where normally we'd have to keep our distance and you say heavier drones how heavy do they they get i mean drones are complicated because you get your really really light ones that are you know under you know 250 grams or less but then you can get up to 10 20 kilos it's kind of where the max that we'd be allowed to operate um we don't operate anything near that we're probably looking at three, four, five kilogram drones, any size you can imagine. I mean, they go up to diesel powered things that the army are using, but also the post office are looking at using for delivering mail to some of the islands. But obviously the bigger they are, the more complex they are, the more rules and limitations there are around who can use them and what they can do. 
And if you get the flyer ID, does that mean that you can fly commercially? Yeah. So until about three, three or four years ago, you used to have to get what they called at the time a PIFCO to be able to fly commercially. So they had, if you're flying non-commercially, you could fly for, for very little money for free almost. And then you'd need this license to be able to fly commercial work. This has now changed. Anyone can do commercial work, but the licenses then allow you to fly within certain certain regions, as I said before. So it allows you to fly closer to uninvolved people. There are extensions for flying extended line of sight. So we're restricted by how far away we can fly. We need to keep the drone within visual line of sight at all times. Um, this and a maximum kind of distance of about 500 meters from us. Um, it's not actually that far when you're working, when you're covering big kind of estate level areas. You can get extended licenses for be able to fly further. For example, you might have a second colleague a kilometer away who then takes control of the drone once it passes that point but there's obviously lots of training and kind of documentation you need to get approved by the CAA to be able to do that. I never knew you could do that patting over control of the drone that's pretty cool. Yeah technology is uh, moving at lightning speed um, it's changed all the time I mean DJI now have a drone that uh, they kind of have this drone in a box kind of thing where it can sit on site and automatedly you know figure out what the weather is, and then fly predetermined missions, collecting data, landing, recharging. Very, very little input from the people. Doesn't yeah. sound very good news for you then, with being a drone operator? Ah, uh, it depends. Um, it's all about the data it's collecting and what you can do with that. The actual data collection itself, these things are meant to make that easier and give you a more wealth of information, but it's kind of useless unless you know how to interpret it, how you can process it to get something of value for your clients or for yourself. And the use and importance of technology and data is constantly being discussed in Scottish agriculture for land managers. Have you seen a growth in this over recent years or has it always been important? Speaking just from own experience, I think there's definitely a shift to more documentation, more data collection, more kind of baseline data, more information on changes as they go on you see that with if you're having to do for example a carbon audit all that information is having to go in now a lot of that has been happening for a while but it's getting more and more digitized um i think everyone is quite keen for them to all kind of the data not to just be used for that one use case and the idea that especially when you're collecting multiple different areas of information from a from a farm or, or a business that data can somehow be used to maybe give you a bigger picture and you can get even more value out of it so I think that's where the focus is now is how people can use all the data they're collecting to pull out more insights than they already have. Obviously, lots of challenges there with data protection, who owns the data and GDPR, making sure that you're not kind of sharing information that you can't, especially when it's spatial information. Just to go back to basics, we've been saying drones. Is this the same as UAVs? What is the correct term or what's the difference? Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Rachel. There are lots of terms for drones. In fact, uh, you'd argue that most people within industries that use drones would never call it a drone. It's just kind of what layman term for, for those systems. You're more likely to see UAV, which is unmanned aerial vehicles, but also a quite common one. And a lot of people would argue is probably the one that's mostly used in industry is UAS now. So unmanned aerial systems, because it just it kind of broadens the definition a wee bit. But yeah, it's a bit confusing. We find it when we're talking about it, we jump between them and oftentimes you're going, 
which term should I use that will be understood by our clients and know exactly what we're talking about. Because I can imagine if I went, oh, we're offering UAS services for a lot of people, that won't mean very much. I've never heard that phrase, the UAS. Obviously heard drones and UAV, but that's a new one. So what are the different types? Because I've seen some organizations will use miniature planes and then there's also the kind of standard drones that like with the four different is it quads you've got two different types well two main different types technically three you've got your multi-rotor which as you said are are kind of your more commercially viable for people who just want to fly drone if you're looking to buy a hobby drone you'll, you'll probably find one of those they're ones that have uh, rotors, so your, as you said, your quadcopter, so your your typical kind of drone you'd see someone flying. They're quite common because they're quite good because they can just hover and move about, so you have a lot of control about where they go. You can have, you know, lots of drones, especially when you get into commercial space. We'll have six rotors, sometimes eight. The more rotors you have, the more stability you get, and also the more fail safe. So if you've got more expensive kit on it, say you've got fifty grand's worth of camera on it. If a motor were to fail and that were to crash, you really don't want that. Really want to try and avoid that situation as much as possible. So when you have more rotors, if one fails, it's less likely that you're going to have a catastrophic failure of the drone. We operate a quad, so it's with four four rotors, so kind of similar, which is kind of that kind of entry level space for those ones. Then you also have your fixed wing, which, as you said, are kind of like the gliders. They have a motor and they they kind of glide so they are a bit more like planes and what they do is they you have a bit less control but because they spend most of their time gliding a lot less energy is required to cover space so you can cover a much wider area um, on less battery they're quite good when you want to cover what wide areas but because they're moving quite quickly you are limited on how high you can fly you can't fly too low because your images that you're collecting will be blurry so got to fly a bit higher so it means unless you have a really high quality camera you're restricted on the detail of image you can get for large scale projects a lot of corridor mapping so for work that's maybe looking at mapping train lines or cable routes you'll see them using a fixed ring because they can just keep them going for far longer than than something that's having to hold itself up by four blades spinning continuously in terms of data that each of them can collect there is quite a bit of difference between the two yes and no so both depends on the use case you can buy drones that basically come with a pre-fit sensor so your kind of cheaper drones usually will come with one sensor that's built into it and then you can get drones that you can kind of change or swap your sensors out you can get these in both kind of model types so as your your rotor multi-rotor or your fixed wing can collect your your aerial imagery you can collect lidar which is kind of laser scanning you can do all that there are sensors in both payloads to be able to do that the difference obviously is is that with a multi-rotor you probably won't be able to cover the same area at the same time and with a fixed wing you're not going to be able to fly around a building to kind of build a 3d model or something like that you won't be able to stop the drone and just take and monitor a single location and kind of just keep an eye on one area so say you're using a thermal camera and you want to look at deer counts or something, and you wanted to just keep it focused on one area and see, count how many heat signatures were popping up over a time frame. You couldn't do that with a fixed wing, whereas with a multi-rotor, you could just sit that drone there well, until the battery runs low and you have to return to home. I should also mention there's uh, there are hybrid drones now, kind of 
becoming more and more popular that basically have almost both systems built in so you can you can hover them and at the same time go and uh, do your fixed wing flight as well that's kind of where it's going in terms of drone missions for a lot of people have you ever flown one of the hybrid drones no i wish we had one but uh no i haven't in fact i've never flown a fixed wing we're mainly operating out with uh, multi-rotors at the moment and how can the drones or UAVs be used to monitor and quantify and assess natural capital? It's a very good question. There's lots of ways that these drones can, can kind of monitor and quantify natural capital. It depends, again, what you're looking for. So in the simplest form, you've just got change monitoring. So monitoring change over time. So say you're rewilding somewhere and you want to to monitor how that is changing and the effects of that and if it's working. One way you can do that is by using drones, including having to use other things on the ground potentially to monitor that. But using drones basically baselines, you'd fly over the area before you've done any change and then you'd kind of fly it over repeat surveys, doing the exact same mission again and again, collecting kind of digital orthomosaics or models or whatever you're looking for. Um, an orthomosaic is basically a Google Earth style image. The drone flies takes lots of pictures that overlap so it's taking a picture every second or something those overlap with the other pictures and all its flight routes it kind of just flies back and forth over the area and then the software stitches those together to give you one big very high quality kind of google earth style image in a much higher detail than you would there so you do something like that you fly those you get those orthomosaics or looking at the terrain because you also get height data from that so you'll be able to see how landscape changes if there's any landscape change and then you, you basically you can run that in software and compare and see what's changing and identify changes there there's also people using thermal sensors as i mentioned before to look at trying to do herbivore impact assessments um, looking at the effect of deer and deer management there's also you can fly a multispectral sensor so a sensor that not only catches your kind of red green blue you know the main colors that we get in normal cameras but also can capture other wavelengths. So you've got your near infrared and red edge, both which are not visible to the human eye, but can be picked up by the sensor and then analyzed in the software. And what that allows you to do is gives you more information to be able to look at identifying differences in plants. You can start looking at plant health. You can start looking at species identification classifying. So you can start looking at trying to separate things and try and get it so that there's less work for the human to do and more trying to train software so that it can do, kind of give you much more information before you have to kind of jump in yourself, saving your time and hopefully money down the line. So if a land manager wanted to hire you to fly the drone with a multispectral camera, you could be able to pick out maybe kind of invasive species on the land? Yes, definitely. It's So there's... At the moment, there are people who are using it to look at, for example, invasive species. Um, it's something we can also do, but it's it's an area where you kind of have to train train the data. So you could either get it yourself, collect this data, and then you'd, you'd look at the data and you'd pick it out by hand. That's, that's easy, and then we can do that quite easily. Um, there's a lot of research in looking at whether or not you can kind of pick up the spectral ID of these invasive species and then automatically put a pin or point or have a boundary in your image of where they are and how big they are, kind of saving you that time. 
there's a lot of software out there that can allow you to do that. The more kind of detailed you get into the individual species, the more complex it gets. But that's definitely the kind of the way it's going. There's definitely there's research in SRUC that was looking at the PhD level, looking at how they can if they can pick out invasive species, how accurate it is, and see what they can pull from there. That's one example. Another example would be if you're just wanting to do a more accurate habitat classification of your land before you do kind of any sort of change to the land use. Obviously, there's satellite data that's available from Scottish government and the UK government that kind of classifies land use across the UK. Um, CH also have one. But those are kind of based mainly on algorithms at a national scale. You don't really get the same accuracy as you would if you're doing it in a much more smaller area. So what we're finding with some clients is they're using this this national scale classification and they're not happy because it's not representing their land as they see it on the ground because obviously the resolution of that is much higher or lower. So you're not you're not getting as accurate depiction of what's there. If say you wanted to go out and map an estate with a drone or a plane you'd be able to then use that multispectral data or other data like that to kind of help you classify the change in land use and give you a far more bespoke and accurate kind of picture of what's what's on the ground. It's a very long-winded way of saying that. (laughs) Sorry. Makes sense not using the satellite data to do your baseline because if you're using it to monitor change and if it's not a representative of what's actually on land, then it's not going to measure change that well. Got to be careful with that because the data we're talking about there is open source so available so governments made it available to us it's it's quite you know it's 20 10 by 10 or 20 by 20 meter pixels of classification there are private companies private data providers who run satellites who can give you much higher accuracy and high quality satellite data which was not as high quality as drone but can also kind of give you a picture so it wouldn't give you the same breakdown but it give you a much better picture for a much wider area there is also a lot happening in that space for use of of drone well satellite data to do more large scale wider area kind of classifications of land use it's just they cost money they can get really expensive so it's just the open source stuff that might not give a a good picture of the land so for a national scale it's good it's good well it's good enough You know, this data has been trained, it's been ground truth in certain areas, but there's only so much you can do on a national scale and also without spending extortionate amounts of money. These data sets are good for giving you indication of land use and land use change across these areas. When we're talking about those data sets, if you were to pin it down to, say, a thousand hectare site or less, you could start arguing how, how accurate that is, especially if you're wanting to compare that data to changes you're making because you're then comparing it to a baseline that is inherently potentially not right so it's quite good to try and get a more accurate baseline of your site if you're wanting to be able to look at change monitoring over time because i think actually a colleague was talking to me about this the other day um, seamus murphy about how he was doing some work for his master's dissertation that was looking at kind of data sets and what you can use and he kind of found that open source data for baselining um, once you reach a point, it's just not accurate enough. But there's opportunities for using drones. There's opportunities for using airplanes and helicopters. And there's also opportunities for using satellite data. Um, all of them have benefits. And also at different scales, there's very clear, obvious routes you'd, you'd go down. 
And since you brought up Seamus, it's worth highlighting that you and him are somewhat celebrities as you were on Landward on TV about one of your projects using a drone. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. No, we were honoured enough to be on Landward. It was, it was, it was a good day out <laughs> on the farm. Nice group of people. The The project they were kind of covering was, um, it was Scottish Government Knowledge Transfer and Innovation Fund project looking at building a farm carbon storage network so the idea behind it was to get five representative farms of different land uses and farming types across scotland and then combine lidar data from our drone with soil sampling so lidar is light detection and ranging which is basically a laser scanner so what it's doing is it's doing hundreds or thousands of scans a second sending this laser down and that is then bouncing off whatever's on the ground and reflecting up. So you're getting a height of these things. You're getting points identified where they are. But because it's doing it so fast and you're getting such a dense scan, um, what it allows is it to kind of penetrate through canopy. So you often get through dense vegetation and you'll get ground points as well. So what that gives you is a kind of almost a 3D cross-section of your above ground kind of biomass and your above ground space your above ground trees all of that that you wouldn't get using just a normal camera because the normal camera would just catch the top of that so we used lidar and soil sampling across these sites to try and try and basically quantify carbon storage on farm in the soils but also in the above ground biomass so in the trees and hedgerows and the idea was is that we'd we do this work on each of these representative sites, so upland farms, lowland farms, beef and sheep, dairy, a croft over in Tyree, and also arable farm as well over in Angus. And by doing that, it would kind of give us a better understanding of what's already stored on site and hopefully allow us to kind of portray the value of what farmers already have on their land and how they can maybe better manage that, protect it, and what they can do to kind of enhance that down the line. Could landowners with this data enter any kind of like carbon credit schemes that are going around? Whew, you're getting onto a, a sword. A controversial topic there, but yeah, got to be careful with carbon credits. I mean, you see it every day in the news when they're, you know, I think there was one that just came out the other day that was talking about the top 50 schemes and how they, uh, they may not be doing what they say they're doing uh, and just in terms of credits. That wasn't the goal of that project to look at that potentially down the line. However, with carbon credits, it's usually around additionality. So you need to be adding something, whereas we were looking at what's already there. You know, we do do work with, for example, the peatland code. We we do validation verification there, not really using the drone there. Um, it does feed in a bit because contractors are bringing in data they're collecting with drones and we have to be able to look at that. And it's being used more and more to, for them to pinpoint what they've done on site, identify where erosion's happening, uh, saving them a lot of time and money. Um, so it's, it's getting big in that area too. I think drones are becoming more and more used in these spaces to evidence for, for applying for carbon credits and things like that. So for the peatland, as I said there with the peatland code, um, project developers who are restoring sites, they're starting to use drones to map out all the hags and gullies and erosion on site. They're also then using drones to fly over once restoration has been done to be able to map out where they've installed what. And the idea is, is that they can kind of almost create a digital twin 
of the site. So kind of a digital version of the site and also very accurate point to point kind of view of where these where these features are. Whereas in the past, what they'd have to do is every time they're installing a feed, well, first off, they'd have to go out and they'd have to go onto site and they'd have to go and map out erosion features. They'd have to take really core satellite data from Google Earth or someone like that and have to draw lines on it to map out where they see features. They'd miss quite a few features on there and some features maybe look like they're eroding that might not be on site. Whereas if you flew the drone over it, you'd be getting a real-time view of that. You'd be able to pick up far more features. And also there's a lot of softwares out there now that are automating that to a degree. So you can run a first pass through the software. It picks out all these features. Then you go through and you, you confirm each feature, whether it's right or wrong. And if it's missed some, you add those as well. So saving a lot of time. Once they've done that, they can then use that as evidence that they've done what they said they've done. And then over time, as they go back, because they're expected to every 10 years kind of do a survey of the site to assess whether or not the restoration they've completed is actually effective. So whether or not they'll be able to unlock the carbon credits or not that they may, they've applied for. Drone data could be is starting to be a really good way of showing that identifying that data so that it's all in one place it's done quickly it's saving them time and money and also giving very high quality data to the to the validator verifier for review there's still a lot of discussion going on within the actual validation verification side on what's acceptable and what's not in terms of accuracy in that area i think in the next year that will be it'll become pretty standard practice that developers are sending this information in and that's just one example Uh, there's Lots of companies in forestry, so when they're doing the forest woodland carbon code, a lot of companies are using drones to map out stand counts, growth rates, estimate the carbon from them, stuff like that. It's also companies using satellite data to look at bigger areas and say the rainforest. You've got space intelligence, I think Edinburgh-based, using satellite data to try and monitor red projects over in the Amazon. It's quite good to hear that the drones can help with mapping like the erosion and gully features on peatlands. I think that was one of my first jobs to help you do that when I started. And it was very time consuming sitting in front of the screen on and mapping them all out. And it's quite hard. So anything that can help with that, I'm in favour of. Yeah, it's a long day out, isn't it? <laughs> can the drones do peat depth? Not that I know of. I know there, I remember chatting to a guy at an archaeological event doing kind of surface assessments to get ground penetration and get kind of vibrations back to see what's what's under the ground. And I was like, oh, could you do that with a drone? And he said, technically, yes, but you'd have to fly very low and quite high. But uh, no, not at the moment. It's mainly surface. That is a limitation of the drones at the moment. There are companies that are using satellite data, so they're using satellite-based, so INSAR, which is kind of type of uh, radar of satellites, and they're looking at bog breathing, the change in water table and the change in bog over the seasons. Well, they found ways that they believe that they can kind of pick out degradation, health of a bog, and also potentially depth to a degree using kind of that satellite data on a larger scale. It's not currently a sensor you can really get on a drone or it's not really available. It's satellite for now, but yeah, there's a lot going on there where they're kind of looking at these things. So you've mentioned the Farm Carbon Storage Network, and we can 
put a link to your Landward episode in the show notes and also some more information on the project. Are you involved in or have you been involved in any other interesting projects? Yeah, no, we've got a few projects on the go. Um, one that I think is quite interesting where we're supporting on, um, we aren't leading on it, is uh, up on the RSPB's recently purchased the uh, Glen Crippesdale Temperate Rainforest Reserve. I think that's what they call it. Um, so we were up there earlier in the year with Dr. Hannah Rudman, who runs one of our challenge centers, or co-leads it. And the project was looking at trustable IoT. So IoT is Internet of Things. So basically any sort of sensor, it doesn't have to be a drone. So it could be a rain gauge, it could be looking at water height, it could be looking at soil moisture, it could be a camera trap or an acoustic, you know, uh, audio moth, so picking up bird sound any sort of sensor in an area and how they're collecting data and they can then be transferred either remotely or by going into site and collecting it at a later point to kind of give you this this digital information across the site over time so it's collecting time series data over a period of time we went out with them while they were collecting audio moth data so they're collecting bats and also bird noises they're also looking at using camera traps to identify what species are on site they had otters they had deer they had some badgers and some other animals out there they'll have a lot more data now this was over three months ago so we went out with them while they were replacing those and we went and flew the drone um, also just looking at baselining some of the forestry so we flew over this quite degraded temperate rainforest in areas flew with the LIDAR to basically try and give them an idea of what's on the site because a lot of the site's quite steep slopes so it's difficult to access um, so by flying the drone we were able to a kind of do tree count for them identify where the trees are and b give them imagery that would allow them to see where there's maybe bracken overgrowth or invasive species like rhododendron or where there's areas that could be improved to try and support natural regen of the temperate rainforest in the area. No, that's a really cool project. It's still ongoing. I think they're just about to go out and put in, do eDNA kit testing. So take samples of water um, to test for whatever DNA they can find in it. So see what's on site, the ecology of the site through animal DNA that has flown, kind of ended up in the water stream per se. It's quite fascinating stuff where the tech's going anyway. And when will all that information come out? You said it's still ongoing. Is it a long project? I don't know, actually. I think, I know Hannah Rudman's already done a few videos which have been released looking, talking about the importance of this data and it being trust, trusted and making sure that it's, it's secure and it's not being tampered with and that, you know, stakeholders can use it. Uh, I know there's a few more videos planned and I think they're, they're planning to keep going out and try and do it for a few years. So this year they're kind of trying to baseline the site in cooperation with the, the site managers from RSPB. The idea is hopefully the information they're collecting will be useful for them to be able to improve the site, but also it will kind of show, serve as a model for potential systems for, for doing this elsewhere. A big keyword at the moment that a lot of people talk about is digital twins. Digital twin is basically a digital version of your land or data, basically having a digital representation of what you've got on land and that often will be you know maybe a, a 3d image of the area as it's changing but also understanding of soil moisture or as i said all those sensors feed into it so you basically have a digital version that's also portraying 
how wet the site is, how much rain it's getting, how fast the rivers are flowing, what the species are on site, all of those things. So the more data you can feed into it, the better your twin is. And the idea is, is that digital twins will allow you to, A, on one level, allow you to kind of market your space to the rest of the world as a good example, but also it will give hopefully confidence to investors and also who may be investing in supporting restoration of these sites because they'll basically have this concrete data in digital form of what is on the site. So you've kind of got a really good kind of data chain of change on site, which will then allow you to have kind of confidence in the changes that are happening on site um, and mapping those out, which will hopefully lead into confidence in any sort of funding or financing that's going to support this or any sort of claim they'd make on credits if they were to go down that route, which I don't know if they are. When you say like that with the digital twin, it's quite obvious how important the role of a drone and baselining your land with a drone is in order to get the good data for the baseline. As I said before, I think drones, one way to do it, it's quite a good way to do it. But once you get to a certain scale of site, so once you get to a certain size, it starts to become impractical because you can only cover such a big area on a flight with a drone. If you're looking at, say, thousands of hectares you're probably better off trying to get someone with a plane to to fly the area or maybe use satellite data there's a lot of different things to consider when deciding what kind of method you want to capture your data on drones are a really flexible way to capture large areas quickly in the relation grand scheme of things they're quite small areas um, compared to say like the whole of scotland with satellite data or say whole like national park using aerial data you've got to consider the scale that you want um, how big your area is will then kind of feed into what's maybe best obviously price wise there's a lot of variation drones can be quite cheap but also depending on what data your collection can be quite expensive so for example lidar data it's quite complex data the sensors are very expensive then it's got to feed into software, which is also quite expensive. And then on top of that, it has to go through quite a long kind of processing process to kind of get information out that's useful. Whereas if you're just doing photogrammetry, which is taking normal camera and kind of getting that ortho mosaic we talked about earlier, that's really quite simple. You pre-plan your route, you fly it with the camera, it takes pictures, you shove the data into it. And depending on the accuracy you need, you can create something in an hour or two in the office afterwards. So you kind of got those levels of complexity with the drone. It's the same with the other ones. So once you start getting to wider areas, you know, satellite data is expensive, especially when you're not open source data. Once you cover a big enough area, price per area drops down considerably compared to what you could get with a drone or a plane. It's just finding that that sweet spot in terms of price for value based on, on scale and size and accuracy required. It gets a bit complicated i'd say anything kind of thousand hectares well you can get over a thousand hectares but i'd say sweet spot for drone is kind of this this kind of few hundred to a thousand hectares but i'd say a thousand hectares depending on your drone again could be done really quickly or could take you forever Um, as i said you know if you've got a really small entry-level drone you aren't going to be able to cover that area if you've got a fixed wind drone you'll be able to cover it quite quickly if you've got a multi-rotor like ours you could probably do it in three to four days of just flying doing about four or five flights a day a large part of that restriction is the regulations so how far we can fly in a single flight 
the end game is where you you can get your permissions to be able to do extended line of sight and all of that you really need to be flying a lot and really pushing that and it, kind of pushing for that licensing to get that at the moment down the line the caa so civil aviation authority say it'll be easier to get that there'd be an, an add-on module to their their gvc certificate we're still kind of waiting on that so at the moment you've got to go down a separate route and pay a bit of money to kind of do that and the last question that we like to ask our guests which might be quite hard for you considering the how fast technology moves is there anything that you're excited about for the future i mean this area is just moving extremely quickly I mean, even the last six months, I mean, you've all seen it with ChatGPT and all of that, how these companies have just kind of had these breakthroughs with their AI kind of software that is feeding directly into kind of data anal- analysis here. So I think the biggest changes for this kind of area isn't, isn't the technology, the physical hardware technology itself. That's continuously improving and upgrading, and that's exciting in its own sense. But it's what can be done with the data you're collecting and how that's processed. There's lots and lots of companies, even Meta and companies like that are coming out with tools that allow them to segment. So automatically pick out buildings and trees and this. And so just making things that in the past have been quite difficult to do, really, really simple. I mean, that's just, yeah, it's moving incredibly fast. It's really exciting to see where that's moving and how that will, you know, how that will play out for industries and and the data they're collecting hopefully for the positive keep an eye out on on all that space because there's a lot going on thanks a lot for coming on today jack no thanks for having me it's a pleasure if you want to find out more information on everything we've discussed we've provided links in the show notes and there's lots of additional content on fast sounds pages and farm advisory website if you listen to any of our podcasts we would love your feedback we currently have a survey active which you can find at faz.scot forward slash sounds Thanks for listening and we hope you join us for the next episode of Natural Capital. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.